Hello, everyone. I, uh, I just saw greetings from Slovenia. So it is, I, and I love that Slovenia has the word love in the middle. She, he or she put it in all caps. That would be cute. Um, <clears throat> nice to be with you again. I really uh, enjoy being able to host these and and uh, Andrew's happy to have a, a little bit of a break. He's online uh, so much of the time. Um, and now I do, uh, as, as Andy said, uh, he's gonna put some links up. I do a guided mindfulness session at this point every other Friday and morning in, in Pacific Coast time. Because we have people here from Europe, I think that uh, we're going to still want to have the time be um, at, at the you know this to be about the latest time of day for for Andrew's hangout sessions. Um, but uh, I'll leave I'll leave that up to up to him. That's why mine are at uh, ten a.m. Pacific time, so that uh, that the people in Europe were who are tuning in uh, can manage it. Um, what I'd like to do today, as we did last time I was hosting, is start with a little meditation. I'm always inspired by Andrew's uh, meditations and, and his uh, one, one breath meditation, as I've said before, that's a, that's a little short for me. Um, but, but there are times in the day when I do use the one breath meditation. Uh, for example, if I um, hear the microwave go off. You know, I think I talked about this last time. I, I have a, a um, something I call stop, drop, and breathe. And you know, when, when if your clothes are on fire, the instruction is to stop, drop, and roll. Stop moving. Uh, don't try to run away from the fire <laughs> that, that's burning on your clothes. Drop to the ground uh, and, and then roll to extinguish the fire. But when our mind is on fire, what we want to do is stop, drop, and breathe. So stop doing what we're doing, either the physical activity or the, uh, or the mental activity when our mind is on fire. Stop doing that. Drop from our head into our body and breathe. So I, I like to use signals. You know, I, I took the uh, idea from Zen monasteries where they have a temple bell that's rung at random times during the day. And whenever it's, it's rung, people have to stop, drop what they're doing and take a few breaths. So um, I find it very, very helpful when I'm driving in my car and I come to a red light. I, I, in fact, I've stopped trying to make it through the yellows. I, I, when, I, when it's yellow, I, I use, I go, oh, good, a red light, chance to meditate. This is great. Um, and then, of course, if, the, if I hear my a text come in, uh, I'll, I can take a few breaths for that one. The phone, one, maybe two. Uh, and the microwave, one or two. So it, you know, it, it's something you can do to keep your practice going all through the day. Now, if you want to tie this into dream yoga, what you can do is whenever these signals go off that remind you to stop, drop what you're doing, take a breath, and then you can ask the question, 
is this a dream? Am I dreaming? And that will help you um, attune your attention and your memory for uh, nighttime when you're dreaming. Because the whole point of, of dream practice and lucid dreaming, it, it, it all depends on remembering. And remembering to check and say, hey, wait a minute, is this a dream? Uh, remembering your dream signs. Uh, sometimes we actually have the kind of dream signs that we might have at night during the day. Um, like I, often in my dreams, I have mechanical issues or you know a car or something that I'm trying to, to work with that, that doesn't make any sense in the dream. And sometimes if I have that kind of issue during the day with my car or something, you know, uh, last night, I, I kept trying to turn the TV off without turning the cable box off and it didn't seem to work. And I said, is this a dream? And then it turned out it wasn't. I was just pressing the wrong button on the, on, on the remote. So, so we can use those situations where it, things don't make sense and say, hey, wait a minute, am I dreaming? So that we remember to do that when things don't make sense during a dream at night. But uh, stop, drop, and breathe. Use your breath in, in that way. And, and I really got inspired by Andrew's uh, one breath meditation that you can do anytime. Now, what I thought we'd do today, um, especially given this environment of the pandemic and illness, I thought we'd do a little bit of grounding practice and a little bit of uh, a few breaths of mindfulness practice. And then, uh, I think last time I talked a little bit about what in the Pali language is metta and in Sanskrit is maitri, which is love, translated as loving kindness. Uh, there's a practice called maitri bhavana, which was introduced by Trungpa Rinpoche in, in the Vajradhatu Sangha. And maitri bhavana was a practice for uh, doing for the ill. Um, what I wanted to do when, when we do this practice is, is not only tune into physical illness, but also uh, emotional ills, right? That traditionally we would call uh, clashes or, the, or poisons of negative emotions that overtake us and sweep us away. So let, but let's start with the, uh, the grounding practice. So, uh, this is something that I do to help me move into uh, awareness as I'm going to sleep. So, so I do this, this lying down at night, uh, lying on my side, and feeling all the weight in my body, real, real body awareness, until all the weight is on the side that's pressing into the mattress and letting it sink, sink into the mattress. Before I do that, I kind of do a sweep, like a body scan, of just letting go, just huh, letting go of the unnecessary tension. So we'll do that first. And then letting the weight sink down and letting my awareness move down into my body and then sink down uh, towards the mattress. So that's how I start meditation sessions sitting up. But you can do that in the evening on the way into awareness uh, as you fall asleep. And we can talk about that a little bit more during the uh, uh, question and answer session. 
So uh, to begin with, sit up, kind of as if you were paying attention. And for this practice, you can let your eyes gently close. Be comfortable, but not so comfortable that you're going to fall asleep. What I like to do is when I'm sitting in a chair, scoot my butt against the back of the chair, but then lean a little bit forward so that I'm not leaning against the back of the chair. Only my butt is, is touching the, the base where the back of the chair meets the seat of the chair. Let my arms hang to the sides and then swivel my hands up, either palm down on my thighs just behind my knees or palms up one, one on top of the other. Like, let's see how we can do this on the, like that, kind of at, at waist height. And the thumbs just lightly touch as if you were just barely holding a piece of paper between them. So that's a, those are two traditional postures for our hands. And uh, if your legs are long like mine, I cross them in front of me gently. Otherwise, uh, have them flat on the floor, about the same distance apart as your hips. So let your eyes gently close. Feel your posture and let your spine just gently lengthen a little bit. I'm not going to say how, just what it'll feel like. Just let it feel like your spine lengthens a little. And, and when that happens at the top of your spine and the, and the back of your head extends slightly upward, your chin comes in naturally. Be aware of any tension you're feeling. We'll start sweeping out from the top of our head. Top of your head, forehead, eyes, ears, cheekbones, jaw, the back of your head. We often hold more tension in our jaw than we realize. And one thing you can do, it's called progressive relaxation. You intensify and release. So first wiggle your jaw a little bit and then, and then clench it for two or three seconds. Hold, 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 let go. Let your lips part a little bit. Let your jaw just hang there. Neck and shoulders. Your whole shoulders from the collarbones to the top of your shoulder blades. Again, we often hold a lot of tension there in our neck and shoulders. So in the same way, feel them hanging. You want to feel like your spine is a tent pole and the rest of your body is like the canvas that hangs from it before you pull the tent out. And then to release the last bit of tension, intensify and release. Lift your shoulders up to your ears and clench your neck and shoulders and hold it tight for one second, two seconds, three, let go. Just let your shoulders drop. You may be surprised at how far they drop down by themselves. Upper arms, chest and back. Rib cage, lower back, deep belly. Again, the deep belly is a place in our core where we hold more tension than we realize. Sometimes we're holding from our stomach all the way down to the bottom of our torso, just tight and don't even realize it. 
So again, keeping your posture, your spine upright, just let your belly hang. And now you'll intensify and release, clench your lower back and your abs and your lower belly. One, two, three, let it go. Oh. Let it go without losing your posture. Feel your hips, thighs, forearms, and hands. You do the same thing. Tighten up your forearms, hands, and thighs all at the same time. One, two, three, let go. Oh. Knees, calves, ankles, and feet. Tighten up the calves, ankles, and feet. Just tighten, 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 and let go. Oh. Go back to the top of your head and just feel like it's a gentle dust room. Sweep all the tension all the way down with one big breath. Breathe in. Sweep it all the way out. Oh, it's refreshing. And again, let your awareness drop. This is part of the stop, drop, and breathe. Drop from behind your forehead where we really feel like our mind is. Let it drop back and down to the back, lower back of your skull, and then down the back of your throat. Like your awareness is gently settling, like a leaf settling to the bottom of the pond behind your heart, behind your solar plexus, slowly settling down behind your navel, down a few inches more, the deep core of your torso just in front of your spine. It's quiet down there. You can feel your lower torso move gently as the breath goes in and out like gentle currents at the bottom of that pond. And with each out breath, just let your weight sink down. This is like that practice I talked about at nighttime, where you feel your weight really gathering deep down in the seat. Breathe out and feel like you're sinking down through your seat. Breathe out and feel like your weight is merging. Your body's merging with the earth, your lower body. You can feel this at night when that side of you that's lying on the mattress, that side is sinking into the mattress. Feel like you're sinking a little bit into the earth, but your upper body extends upward majestically like a mountain. Let the breath come and go as it will be an observer rather than a director of your breath. This is important for any of the mindfulness of breathing practices you do. You're mindful of your breathing. You're not making your breathing do something one way or the other. Let it come and go as it will, like the wind. Let your mind be open and impartial like the sky. Body like a mountain, breath like the wind, mind like the sky.
Let your eyes gently open without losing your posture, without tilting your head forward. Just let your gaze be downward at about a 45 degree angle. Like that. You take seven breaths, just mindful of the air coming in through your nostrils and filling you. Your torso emptying and the air going out through your nostrils. It's okay if it goes out a little bit through your through your through your lips, but coming in primarily through the nostrils. Just count backwards from seven. Good. I like the counting backwards. Maybe it's a little bit like self-hypnosis, you know, counting backwards when you're being hypnotized by the watch going back and forth. But I find it helpful at night when going to sleep, you're kind of going down, moving down into sleep out of the busyness of the day into the quiet. And, and in your dream yoga, that's the time when you can start to pick up hypnagogic imagery. It's kind of a bridge into the dream state. And maybe the easiest way to start picking up a lucid dream in that hypnagogic imagery state. Again, you're observing your breathing and observing your thoughts by clouds passing through the sky. Your mind is the sky. The thoughts are the clouds. Sometimes they go faster. Sometimes they're like birds. Sometimes they're big and noisy like jet planes. But basically, your mind is the sky. You have thoughts, but you are not your thoughts. And the other practice I wanted to do, I mentioned earlier now, is the Maitri Bhavana practice. And what we're doing is we're, as we breathe in, it's a kind of, it's a, a kind of tonglen, it's a sending and taking practice. We want to imagine that we're taking from the person who's suffering and breathing that into our heart center. And I find it helpful to imagine a clear crystal made of light in your heart center. Your heart center is the center of your chest at heart level, but it's not the organ, the heart organ, it's the heart center line, aligned in line with your spine. And imagining a clear crystal made of light, any shape that you like, the crystal has transformative properties. So that whatever you gather, negativity you gather into the crystal transforms into positive energy that then radiates out. And the last time I was here, what we did was we, we breathed in negative energy and feelings 
into the crystal and, and it radiates out cool moonlight of kindness that fills ourselves and others with peace and happiness. So in this case, we're going to focus on um, a little bit more on the painful side of things, on the illness side of things. And there's plenty in the world. But we're going to again start with ourselves. And you can do this with your eyes closed or open. It's up to you. But keeping your good posture, imagine that crystal in your heart center, if you'd like. And as you breathe in, just first be aware of any um, illness or pain you're having in, that you're experiencing that you would rather not have, obviously. We go back to the Four Noble Truths. We do suffering and the cause of suffering and relief from suffering and the path to that relief from suffering. So any kind of suffering you're experiencing and, and now include mental suffering, anxiety, anger, frustration. Maybe you have cabin fever and claustrophobia in this pandemic. Whatever you have, just be aware of it throughout your being, your body and your mind. And as you breathe in, gather it into the crystal in your heart center. And as you breathe out, the crystal has transformed it already. Radiate out to yourself this cool moonlight of kindness that fills you with relief from your suffering, physical and mental. Breathe in and gather the suffering. Breathe out. Fill yourself with relief. Breathe in any illness, pain, suffering. It transforms. As you breathe out, the crystal radiates out cool moonlight of kindness that fills you with peacefulness and relief from suffering. Just do a couple more breaths like that. And now, again, you can keep your eyes closed or you can open them. But this time in particular, think of a person, one person, a family member, a friend, someone you maybe you saw on TV, human, can be an animal, whatever evokes the compassion in your heart. And think of them and the illness that they have particularly a physical illness in this case, but it can also be mental suffering, serious mental suffering. And in either case, keeping them in mind, visualizing them in front of you, breathe in and as you breathe in, imagine that you are gathering and taking from them all of that suffering. 
and gathering it into the crystal in your heart in which it instantly transforms. And you radiate out to them this cool moonlight as you breathe out, radiate out this cool moonlight of kindness that fills their being with peace and relief from that suffering. Breathe in and gather into the crystal. Breathe out and radiate health, peacefulness and health. Gather in the illness, transforms, radiate out healthiness. That's essentially the Maitri Bhavana practice. And after you've done a few breaths for that particular individual, you can think of others and include as many as you want. People that you know or you've seen. Now to do this, you actually have to feel the texture of their suffering. This is how it works. It creates this compassionate feeling. Because you, it's not sympathy, it's empathy, feeling with. Sympathy is feeling for, you are feeling with. Feel what, as best you can, what they're feeling. As you gather that into the crystal, and then feel the relief, feel the healthiness that's being radiated out from your heart center that fills them with relief and healthiness. So in this case, they're in front of you and as far around you as you're comfortable with, as many or as few as you're comfortable with, gather in the illness and suffering into the crystal, it instantly transforms. There is no residue in you fully transforms and radiates out. It becomes the fuel. Compassion turns this negativity and illness into the fuel of healthiness and openness, relief. And then as best you can, imagine that this practice extends to all beings, great and small, that are having these struggles, this illness. There are, there are millions and millions just with the one disease that's going around this COVID-19 pandemic. Millions and millions of people suffering from this, let alone all the other illnesses in the world. Your crystal has the power to transform all of that. As you breathe in, gather as much as you can into that crystal. It instantly transforms and radiate out in all directions, above, below, and all around. This cool moonlight of compassion that fills all beings with healthiness and freedom from suffering.
Now let go of the visualization. Just tune in to the physical sensation again of the breath coming in, filling and empty. Three. Two. One. And done. And traditionally, when, when we do this practice, um, sometimes people do it before the practice as an aspiration. Sometimes after the practice as an aspiration to continue the compassionate state of mind. And that's the four measurables. May I, may all of us, and you can think of it as, you know, all beings, may all and every one of us, and that includes yourself, may all and every one of us have happiness in the root of happiness. May all and every one of us be free from suffering in the root of suffering. May all and every one of us have enjoy the great happiness devoid of suffering. May all and every one of us have equanimity free from passion, aggression, and prejudice. So happiness, freedom from suffering, joy, and equanimity. Sometimes they say love, freedom from suffering, joy, and equanimity. But uh, I also wrote a version of this for my, uh, my Winnie the Pooh book. And the last line is, I think, important. May all and every one of us give and receive love. All the love we deserve and, and all the love that maybe we don't truly believe we deserve to move us in that direction. So I hope that was helpful. And we'll uh, do some, uh, Andy can call on some people for comments, questions. And, and I wanted to mention before we all sign off um, that whenever you do practice like this, especially a practice for others, we want to dedicate the benefit, not just to ourselves, but to others. So we'll, we'll at the end, we'll say, and, and you can do it now, and we can do it again at the end after the question and answer. Um, and you can repeat after me. May the practice I've just done be of benefit to others as well as myself. And of course, if you're feeling particularly generous or want to cultivate that generosity, you can say, may the practice I've just done we have even more benefit to others than myself. That's a good bodhisattva attitude. So, thank you for your kind attention and for doing this practice that will undoubtedly benefit many beings. All right, should we start off with some questions then? 
Does he have a nice and quiet account? Let's start with uh, Deborah, who has her hand raised. Okay. Can you hear me? Hi, Deborah. I can see you too. Hi. Uh, yeah. Good. Um, that was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was really beautiful. Um, the the question that I've been having lately is, um, first of all, I've been um, so incredibly moved and moved forward by the courses I've taken with Andrew over the past few months. It's It's been extraordinary for me. And there are others that I have, you know, sat with occasionally online, um, particularly lately, who also do a sort of open awareness meditation. And, and it's, uh, it's the type of, it, it, it's a meditation that seems to pull together everything that I, everything that I've learned throughout um, my years and years and years of meditation and brought, brought it all together and makes more sense to me than anything else. But sometimes I wonder about the confluence um, of in in this country of meditation practice, and all the people. So many people who teach it are psychologists, and then it all begins to seem it's the whole purpose is just is psychology. Just so I get along better with my mother, or you know, <laughs> whatever. I, I'm not so reactive to people, and 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 that's and that doesn't feel like enough to me. And at the same time, um, I've never been a religious person, and still don't have any, you know, any. I don't believe. I don't have belief, so I'm sort of just going on. Um, I don't know what I would call it. I don't know if I call it just okay. See what happens. Um, but I, I kind of go back and forth between those. And even with the Bardos, I did the Bardo courses. I don't know that I believe any of it. And yet the practice feels good. And it feels way better than working with sort of nothing, just psychology. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get a perspective on that. Okay. Well, um, I got about, I think there's about five issues in there. <laughs> at, least, at least. So, so let's start with let's start with psychology. Um, it, it's it's an interesting thing. I have a PhD in psychology, by the way, but I am not a psychologist. Do <laughs> what? Three of my four brothers do as Later. well. Okay. Well, I, I'm not, but I'm not a psychologist. And in fact, um, I went into psychology. Um, because I thought that would be what would uh, answer my question. I, I had a, a, if you don't mind indulging in a, a little history, I, uh, I was at Cornell University, started my sophomore year, walking down the quad and had this conversation with myself that led to a sort of epiphany. I was in the engineering school. And I was always good at science and math, so that's what I thought I would do. And um, I thought about my father, and I, this thought came up, I don't want to be like my father. I don't want to have a house in the suburbs with a white picket fence and 2.2 kids, and that's, that's not what I want. And the voice kept and said, what do you want? 
uh, to do, because my father was an engineer. And, and I said, um, the, these were both my voices, but they were truly asking questions and answering. And I said, uh, I want to teach. I, I had no experience with teaching. I think I tutored a kid in math during high school or something like that. But it just, that's what came to me. And I said, well, what, what do I want to teach? I said, I could teach math. I'm good at that. And I said, I said what, well, why don't you teach what you're really interested in? And I asked myself, well, what am I really interested in? And the answer was why I do the crazy things I do and other people do the crazy things they do again and again and again. Mm -hmm. um, and I knew that I didn't mean really crazy. Right. Ordinary crazy was enough. I mean, ordinary self-defeating behaviors. And I said, that sounds like psychology. And I immediately walked over to the psych building and changed my major from engineering to psychology. And on the form, it said, why do you want to major in psychology? Being a wise guy, I wrote um, to find out why I want to major in psychology. <laughs> but, th but that was really the direction. That was what was available. And not long after, I encountered Buddhism. General Eastern thought, but to start with my first real exposure to it was, was Buddhism, uh, Tibetan Buddhism. And so that ended up being my first and, and what, I, what I stayed with. And, um, and so if you look at the word psychology, it's the study of the psyche. And, and in, in ancient times, psyche was not thinking mind. Psyche was all of mind, which meant, in, and especially in the East, heart and mind. Uh, and in, in Sanskrit, it's chitta. It's one word. It's the same word, heart, mind. So, so psyche also meant spirit. Um, so this ties in with the other things that you were saying. That, but psychology in a different direction with Freud, which is psychoanalysis mm -hmm. and psychotherapy. And it's coming back around and, and, and cognitive behavioral psychotherapy is using a lot of mindfulness, a lot of work that way, rather than just talk, 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 talk. And interestingly, I was just um, reviewing the transcript of a talk that uh, one of my closest teachers gave about psychology. And, and he said something interesting. He said, if, if, if psycho, if psychologists are doing it for the money, if they're doing it with getting the money in mind, that's not so clean. You know, if you're, if somebody comes in and they got a lot of problems and you think, Oh, I'm going to be able to buy a boat. <laughs> that's really not the, uh, not the idea if you're genuinely trying to help people. But again, if the way you're trying to help people is just to give them some temporary relief rather than a deeper understanding of the source of the suffering, then, then it helps a little bit, but it's more like a Band-Aid than, um, than an operation they might need. Now, when you go when you go further, that's why you bring in the the mindfulness practice. But I, I think I told this story before. 
at the same time, and, and, and also people have some issues um, of using mindfulness in a, uh, they call it mic mindfulness. We use mindfulness in companies to try to get people to be more productive and mindfulness you know, in therapy to just help you work through your problems. Um, but I feel like I'm not worried about that because the mindfulness practice itself is self-correcting. That even if you go into it with a, uh, a gaining objective in mind, the practice itself reveals that gaining objective. And so that it undercuts itself. And that's the, uh, if you're doing it properly, our Buddhist practices and mindfulness practice undercut itself because every time that you feel like you have a ground of the practice, ideally your practice deepens and, and undercuts it, like, like waves that come in and, and take the sand out from under whatever you've built your castle on. But it drops down and you gotta build it again. And the wave comes in, it takes, <laughs> takes the sand out from underneath. It doesn't necessarily overwhelm the castle, it just takes it out from underneath. And, and the structures that you've created to hold yourself up temporarily fall apart. Now, when you talk about the religious and spiritual, um, I'd explore, when I was a teenager, I was attracted to religious practices I was exploring. But there was something fishy because all the ones that I explored said, we've got the, the truth. Don't listen to them. We've got the only truth. And so it didn't take long to figure out that they can't be right. If, they, if everybody says that, none of them can be right. I, I encountered a teaching in Buddhism, in the Dharma, and, and it was from the Buddha and said, don't take my word for it, basically. Right. Don't take my word for it. We don't believe. Don't believe. Instead of, instead of blessed are they who believe even though they don't know what they're, what's going on. Here, it's don't believe. Explore for yourself and find out what yourself is, is true. Um, and, and, they, and basically the message I got was, oh, we don't have answers to give you. We have methods. We have tools for you to discover the answers that are already there in your wisdom mind, in your heart. All right. Sign me up. You got it. That's exactly. That's the only. The only ones who are telling the truth are the ones that say we don't have the truth. So that took me in that way. So not having beliefs are great. The, Buddhism is not based on beliefs. No. Um, the closest thing you have is Buddha nature. That everybody has this nature of wakefulness in them. That's the closest thing to a belief, and it's it's pretty close to empirical that it, it really does show up. Now, um, the, uh, what was the other thing? Oh, and the Bardos, oh yeah, okay. So I personally don't remember having died before <laughs> and gone through the Bardo and, and when I was born. Um, but basically it makes sense. So I approach it with an open skepticism. The I don't know. And I yeah. love to see what happens. She has very Zen, the don't know mind. Yeah. And the see what happens mind. And, 
and see what happens is really important, more important than maybe you realize. See what happens means you are open to whatever is coming rather than you need things to turn out a particular way. And one of the greatest sources of suffering is needing things to turn out a particular way. It, um, they won't. No. <laughs> they might, might appear to for a little bit, but eventually they don't. And that, that is what propels, actually propels us through the six realms. This fixating on how you think things should be and, on, and, on, and identity in relating to them. That's what's in the six realms, in, in each of the realms. And what happens is you fixate, but the world keeps changing. So you just get for how you are in the world are seen together for a moment. But then as time goes on, they get further and further and further apart until your version of the world and how the world actually is become unsustainably dissonant. And that's when you die out of one of the realms because it, your identity is no longer sustainable. And you scramble and your past karma propels you into another version of reality that you say, okay, I think it's going to be like this. And then you latch onto that, but need it to stay that way. You need it, you need it to come out that particular way. So, so the realms are continually undercut by impermanence. And that's why we cycle through them. Um, I hope that was helpful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what it is. You know, I, I think I'm in a state of, like, just in case, you know, I'm going to, uh, you know, not knowing. And just in case one day I was having a terrible day, I was, I was having such a terrible day. And, and I thought, and then all of a sudden I thought, and I, I said, you know, I'm not going to do any of this anymore because I'm obviously a terrible Buddhist and, and nothing's working. And I'm just, you know, I just sort of not quite believing what I was saying. But then I said, well, man, if, if, you're if, if this is the best you can do now, just imagine how if, if the bargains do exist, you're going to be really screwed. So, so just in case you might want to do better than this. So, so let yourself be a spiritual person without being a religious person. Yeah, I, I think and, so. Um, and as far as being a terrible Buddhist, that's <laughs> interesting. You see, just remember, just remember there's a difference between Buddhist and Buddha. Yeah. Buddhists are ones that don't realize yet that they're already Buddha. Yeah, I was just on that bad day, you know. <laughs> no, okay. Thank, thank You're you. welcome. Thanks, Deborah. Sorry, I, I, I went on for a bit. Maybe I'm catching something from Andrew. Uh, next up is Hal, has hand raised. So come on, Hal, next. Are you there? I'm here. I'm here. Hi. I have two. I have two how are you? Thank you for doing this. Um, my, truly my pleasure. I can't even tell you. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first one might be enough. I may have used up my um, used up my time just to ask the first one, but uh, I could have to. The set. Uh, the first one is when um, when I've heard about lucid dreaming, 
there's a lot of emphasis on uh, getting into the lucid dream and sort of playing with it and flying or, you know, just to show that you're lucid dreaming. So there's a, a quality, there's, a, there's something you're looking for to convince yourself that you're, you're, you're asleep and you're able to do stuff and you're able to test that reality, that sort of universe. And it's, it's instructive to show that, boy, it's a lot like waking world. However, it's not what we thought it was. And a lot of it's, it's, it's in our minds. So there's a lot of emphasis that. Um, so we're, we're taught to do that by doing stuff. But a lot of uh, practice uh, other than lucid dreaming in the dream is to not do stuff, is to sort of look at the quality of the mind. Mm -hmm. And I, I have heard almost nothing from anybody about, oh, when you're in that state, you know, as if you were meditating, think about your thoughts. What is the quality? And uh, mm -hmm. how do you use your mind or watch your mind or get away from being a doer and observer and actually um, uh, rest in the calmness and appreciate uh, that that very special quality I think ultimately everybody's trying to get to. Yes, yes. Okay, so fir first things first. Um, the, the first question is doing something to recognize that you're dreaming. And, and that is um, suspecting. Now some people, some, and, and, and it's different for everybody and it's different times. Sometimes you go, oh, hey, I get it, I'm dreaming. I just figured it out. Sometimes you go, wow, this is weird. This reminds me of a dream, but I'm not sure if I'm dreaming or not. Just the other night I had a dream and I, and I was, and it reminded me of an, I was in the dream and reminded of another dream that I had, <laughs> but didn't realize that the dream I was in was a dream. So, so the first thing is, is very often you do something to test, a reality test. Now, once you have done that, there is a system set up in the Tibetan teaching of dream yoga that goes through a sequence of things. And what you're doing is training yourself in practice in the dream. So the sequence of things, and you start with doing things, which is so that you have some agency in the dream and it's not just running you. Now, the reason for this is ultimately we do want to get to doing essentially Mahamudra or Mahati practice, Dzogchen practice in the dream. But that's really simply being. And if there's one flicker of mind that in our waking life would take us off into a daydream, like during, right? Like how, like doing sitting meditation, right. you're sitting there and you're going, ah, breath filling, emptying. Oh, this is very relaxing. This reminds me of that yoga class I took. I wonder what happened to that instructor. I really liked her. I think she went to New York City. I love New York City. I played with something. And suddenly you're 
in a play in New York City. Right. And you've lost your mindfulness of your breathing. Okay, so what happens in the dream is if you are dreaming and you don't have a very, very stable mindfulness practice and you, and you haven't trained in dream practice to be able to have agency in the dream, what will happen is you go, oh, lucid dream. Okay, I'm going to meditate. Oh, yeah, this is great. And boom, you're gone. You forget the dream. And, and you forget, you, no, you're off into a dream and you've lost your lucidity. See, that's the right. thing. Right. And, and so what you're, the sequence of practices also include, uh, they include doing some manipulations. They include relating with fear, like, jump, like in the dream, jumping off a cliff or into a fire or into a river or something like that. But these are, these are just steps in training. And in fact, then go you in your dream, go to te- go to teachers, travel to teachers and get teachings from them. But ultimately, the final practice is rest in formless meditation. But you can't just jump to that one or you lose your lucidity instantly. So the steps are to train in that lucidity. But the purpose of the activity yeah, if you're not doing it for the purpose of ultimately getting to be able to do formless meditation in the dream, yeah, then you have other purposes. And some people do that for other purposes, for entertainment, for whatever they're doing. But as far as the practice goes, you still need to do some things on the way to have the agency and stability. Stability is the most important thing. Stability in your lucidity so that you don't just... And you're gone. Yeah, that's that okay. makes sense. But I have a quick other one. What Andrew I think has asked in some of the, a lot of his interview, always in his interviews, is what is your go-to technique for a lucid dream? If if someone said, "Okay, you you got a lucid dream tonight," what I think this is his question. What what would you do? And yeah. I, so uh, so for me, that. for me, it's it's work on the hypnagogic imagery, get in through hypnagogic imagery. Thank you. Thanks, Al. All right, next up is Alex. Hi, Alex, are you still here? I am. Ah. I am. Hi, Joseph. Where are you you from? I'm from Mexico City. I I taught in Cuernavaca and uh, um, Tepatzlan. Ah, in Tepoztlan, yeah, it's, it's very near here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and my brother lives there, actually. Great. Very, very beautiful, mm-hmm. mystic, mystic place. Yes. So uh, thank you very much for taking my question. And I just uh, been thinking real hard how, how I can articulate my question because it's kind of a complex question. So... Here I go. Make it as simple as you can. Exactly. <laughs> so, Joseph, I am a person that uh, has had uh, in, in his life, I'm 45 at the moment, and I have had like all these issues, yeah, with uh, uh, being uh, functional in life, uh, of every, every front of my life, it's hard to deal with, you know? Okay. 
I, I, I have a deal with uh, cannabis addiction for like the best of 25 years. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to say today that I'm clean now. Good. Congratulations. For, thank you. For, uh, for now, in this process, I'm like uh, five months and a half clean, yeah? Okay. So it's, it's been a struggle, yeah? And, and things have been coming out uh, that I wasn't aware of. Like, uh, uh, I, I had a, a, I, I, I was abandoned. I was separated from my mom from the age two till the age four. So this is something I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But so so uh, let me interrupt just one second. So for all of the rest of us, this is a kind of opportunity to do that Maitri practice uh, and identify what it feels like to be abandoned and and take that take that pain from you and extend healthiness and re and relief and security to you. Now, for you, that's something you, you can do for yourself. But I want to I emphasize something. You're a different person than the child that was abandoned. You're the same in some way. In the Buddhist tradition, we think of it as like a flame being passed from candle to candle. It's not the same flame, but it's, not, it's a different flame. It, it, it's not the same and it's, and it's not different. So it's important for you to do this practice for the child that you were and breathe in the suffering of that child into that crystal in your heart and then radiate out to the child and yourself that cool moonlight of compassion that soothes the suffering and the struggle. Okay, just want to catch that before we go too much further. Okay, well, okay. Th thanks for that. Yeah, I was. I w yeah, thanks for that. So, so I'm. I'm. I wasn't aware of that. I don't mm -hmm. even remember that. No, you wouldn't. And, and and I'm and I was. I just started to be aware of it just a few years ago. My older sister told me. Where when my where my mother was already gone, so this really bad resentment uh, came out towards my mom, you know. So, so I guess because it's, it's, it goes more complex than this, but I, I, just to try to keep it simple, yeah. Because mm -hmm. uh, as an addict in in rehab. You know, in the, in the twelve step program, mm -hmm. I am dealing with my ego a lot. You know, more now than ever. You know, because it's it's very early in my process, in this process. Mm -hmm. You know, and I and I and I, I I'm going through things like what I would call wisdom greed, where I don't want to share wisdom with others. <laughs> because oh, I see you saying. Yeah, I understand. Because it's my it's it's it's, it's my precious. You know? Yes, I, I understand. <laughs> so um, it's, yeah, you know, Alex, uh, there is some there is wisdom in that as well. Um, because traditionally, if you have something that you're working on for yourself, uh, 
spreading it around to others sometimes has a quality of leaking, leaking the energy. So it's not contained for you to continue your processing. And the other is, until you've developed more clarity, the wisdom that you think you're sharing with others may actually not be appropriate for them. So no problem with, with that. It, don't think of it as greed. Think of it as uh, um, uh, appropriate caution for yourself and for others. Because sometimes when you have these epiphanies and, and uh, realizations, you just want to tell everybody. But it, it, you know, again, my teacher said, good intentions mixed with confusion are a recipe for disaster. Good intentions mixed with confusion are a recipe for disaster. It's Ursula Tenzin. And, and so, so um, for your own processing and for others, no problem keeping it just working on, on yourself that way. Okay? Uh, now, as, as far as the resentment, that's an important one to work on. To me, it is one of the most troubling poisons um, because it, it poisons you and it poisons your relationship with the other person, but mostly it poisons you. And... <laughs> Uh, there are a couple ways of putting this. Uh, one one person said, "It's like taking poison and hoping that the other person dies." <laughs> yeah. And and Pema Pema Trigen said, "It's like it's like reaching into a fireplace and picking out the embers to throw at somebody. You might hit them and you might not, but you for sure are going to get burned." So. Um, the the resentment there are a few different practices to do with that but you can do something like this practice but understand again that um your mother was operating out of a tremendous amount probably pain but definitely confusion and so you can feel the pain for the little child that was abandoned, but understand that and put in perspective that what your mother was experiencing, and, and it may not have been overt pain, maybe she was also, uh, I, I don't know the story, but you know there's a story. You know there's a story. And so as best you can, what will overcome your resentment is forgiveness. That doesn't mean not, acknowledge, not, uh, not acknowledging that you suffered. And you may not remember it, but it has an impact on you, for sure. But at the same time, you have to, you, you, the holding on to the resentment only poisons you. So as best you can to say, I don't know the whole story. So even, and even if I can't forgive, I'm going to just boycott the resentment. I'll, I'll just take a neutral, I'll take, as uh, uh, Deborah was saying, the I don't know 
I'm going to take the I don't know point of view. I don't know what was happening with her. So better for me not to judge. Right. Right. Okay. Okay. I hope that's helpful. Yes. Yes. Thank you very much. You're Thank welcome. you very much, Jesse. Um, Rana has her hand raised, so let's call on Rana next. Hi, Rana. Are you there? Hello. Ah, there she is. Hi, Rana. Boy, I feel my heart is full. I need me. <laughs> Share it with everyone. <laughs> You started with love, and I truly, truly appreciate the instruction you gave. And, and I need to say my gratitude to Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche and his loyal student like you. And uh, instruction as Simple as it might be, I haven't heard, heard it like that. And I was fortunate to have John Osijima, and I heard it from him. So uh, I remember John. Good, good. I, this, this was just gratitude for how you did it and you shared with us. Also, I listened to Ani Pema Children last week. She was giving a talk and she was distinguishing between bodhicitta and Buddha nature. And she brought an example that again touched my heart deeply. It was about like people that are like Mozart, they have a talent. And she says that's the Buddha nature, but they need a condition to develop that. So there are many Mozart that they die without knowing their Buddha nature, but we all need the bodhicitta to activate that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I've never heard it like that. So I thought that was really great that she said. And thank you so very much for your teaching. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Um, I, as as I recall, and again, my my scholar brain is a uh, uh, getting a little little old. But um, uh, Buddha nature is uh, more like the uh, the base. The as as she was saying, the the natural the nat it's called the nature, right? Bodhicitta is wisdom mind, or wisdom awakened heart, bodhi and citta. Bodhi is wisdom or awake, uh, more like awake, and, um, and citta is heart mind, so awakened heart. And it has three, it's like a jewel with three faces, three facets, and that's... Um, Prajna, Karuna, and Shunyata, or um, 
discriminating awareness, emptiness, shunita, and compassion. And so, so all three of those uh, function together. They're all facets of the same dual. You know, if you have prajna, the, the insight, without the karuna, without the compassion, that's, like, that's a, uh, akin to a, uh, um, a rich man's, uh, rich person um, tethered by stinginess, limited by stinginess. If you have compassion, but you don't have the progeny, you don't have the insight on how, of how to apply it, that's like a blind person wandering around trying to help, but not being able to see what's needed. So that's relationship with the two of them. And shunyata is um, an essential element of both in, in that if it's compassion with the idea of a gaining nature or prajna with the idea of that it, it, it's not really prajna. If it, prajna is the insight of things as they are and the nature, the way things are, is they're empty, they're shunya, empty of uh, ind independent existence, substantiality. So that's how the three all, all are interwoven. And that's bodhicitta and how it is, how it gets manifested. And you could say that Buddha nature is the basis, bodhicitta is the expression and uh, the qualities, and Buddha activity is the manifestation of bodhicitta in action. I could say that. I don't know if you could say that, but I, I, I said it. Thank you for saying it. I appreciate that. Wonderful. It's, uh, Marilyn has a question, it says, Andy. Oh, and Peter, your choice. Well, I'll call on uh, Peter first until I get clarification from Marilyn. Uh, so, Peter? He showed up in the chat. And... Oh, yeah. Well, hi, hi, Peter. Hi, Peter. Uh, nice to see you again. Same here. Um, I have a question regarding uh, what I guess we could call the, the, the practicality of all this. I have to admit that originally when I got interested in lucid dreaming, I thought, Oh, this is this is amazing! Like this is magic. I got to get to the bottom of this. How do you get um, conscious during the dream and know you're dreaming? I mean, it just it, it it really affected me. And I thought this is a goal. It must somehow be related to spirituality. I'm going to get to the bottom of it. I want to know this. And then I learned that um, lucid dreaming, as such, you know, there's this thing about karma. You're accumulating karma. So then I'm having second thoughts. Oh, I know that collecting karma is not always such a great thing. So let me let me rethink this. And then later I understood that um, in in lucid dreaming, um, you know, one can do this for different reasons. And then I thought, oh yes. So introduce here the the wish to be of benefit to others. Like all of this is to benefit others. That's exactly what we talked about last time you and I had a conversation. Yeah. I was having a little deja vu. So you see, it, it sort of lingers and it comes back to me maybe in a different form, if, if you don't mind. But um, 
So I thought, okay, so let's say we took the form here of with lucid dreaming, I learned how to fly this magnificent airplane. And then I could enable all beings you know, to get on it and we'll all fly together to the pure land. What an image. I just loved it. And I thought, yeah, that's what I'm gonna do. I'll become a pilot and I'll just take people to where they will benefit the most. And, and so what I'm trying to clarify now from you, if possible, is like how to maintain the, the motivational factor in, in striving to become, to, to do lucid dreaming. And I know one can always say, well, move on from there and get to dream yoga and that'll take care of things. But dream yoga is, is quite ambitious. And I'm thinking even before that, what's the approach to use so that um, as I'm doing this, as I'm doing the inducement exercises and I'm trying to think about how to um, favor the, the, you know, the emergence of lucid dreaming, mm -hmm. what's the thought to, to keep in mind so that the motivation, the more altruistic motivation is always uppermost? And, and will that motivation itself facilitate the onset of, of lucid dreaming? Okay, that, that's two questions. Will the motivation facilitate the onset of lucid dreaming? Um, I hope so. I don't know for sure. Isn't it interesting? We all have the same question. It takes different forms, but it ends up being very often the, the same question. Because we talked about motivation last time, the benefit, benefit for others. Now, if you go into your practice uh, and, and you differentiated lucid dreaming and dream yoga, but dream yoga is just, yoga is just the word of joining together. So basically dream yoga is joining together your practice with dreams. So the idea is, as Hal said, the motivation is, how do I practice in my dreams? And, and as Andrew has talked about, when, uh, when you're dreaming, you are not limited by, by physical limitations, by your physical karma. You're not limited by that. So you can accomplish lots of different things that would otherwise limit you. It's the same thing in the bardo, that now you're a mental body. Um, so, I've, so I've been told uh, that you're a mental body and your physical body is, and you're not limited. You can, wherever you think, wherever you think about, you're there. So you're not limited by time and space in the same way that a physical body is. Now, as you get ready for, uh, during, during, the daytime practice for doing working with dreams, always keep that motivation of saying, I want to be able to recognize the dreamlike quality for the benefit of beings. So how does that benefit beings? Well, first of all, it, benefit being, it benefits beings in that you are not so fixated you are not so stuck on things being a particular way, or as we talked before, needing to come out a particular way. 
everything's kind of like a dream. I, I just the other, just not long ago, I was struggling with a communication that that upset me a lot, <laughs> and I remember this morning walking out and saying, "That person is just an appearance in my mind," and this other person who I was talking about that person with is just an appearance in my mind. And everybody that I'm thinking about is just an appearance in my mind. So it, it made it more dreamlike and lighter. So Peter, the bottom line is sense of humor. Having a sense of humor. Now, I, I remembered something I wanted to tell Deborah, but I'll tell you as well. Um, she was talking about uh, doing psych psychology to to be a better person or get along with other people better. And I, I remember going into the um, uh, during the three year retreat, we we did it in phases. And in between, I was talking with one of my retreat mates, and he said something interesting. He said, "You know, the more I practice, the more reasonable my mother becomes." So, so um, the more we practice, the more, the lighter we can take other people. You know, uh, don't take everything so seriously. And in fact, um, before the retreats, I was, I went to this, this couple who was going to the retreat. He, they were good friends of mine. I went to visit their parents, their, her mother. And we, we were having tea and cookies and everything. And, and then the big question, and, and she had warned me, she's going to say, why are you doing this? And so the, the, her mother said, and, and she said, no matter how I explain it, oh, we're going to be meditating, we're going to clarify our minds, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. She, nothing satisfied her. And so we're sitting there and she said, so Joseph, what do you hope to get out of this? doing this three-year retreat. And I said, well, I hope that at the end I come out with a somewhat better sense of humor. And, and she and her mother went, oh, and that was it, resolved. That's all, I said, oh, that made, that made sense to her. That was something that resolved, that resolved it. So um, the whole reason we're, we're doing dream yoga to have a sense of humor about this dream. And within that, and, and that's the thing, to add to what I was thinking about, these are all appearances in, in my mind, but these appearances also have the appearance of unhappiness and suffering. And so that moves me because they don't know that what they're suffering about are just appearances. And so, so recognizing it for yourself inspires compassion for others who are walking around asleep to that fact and not lucid to the fact that it's not as solid as it seems. So for you, the whole point is whatever you're doing, whatever you're thinking, reflect what is my motivation. What is my motivation? And if it's to become a pilot to take people places, you can say, 
Is that the best use of my time and energy to benefit others? And those are, that's always a, always a good question. Now, the answer very often will come, I don't know. But there are two parts to everything, and that is, to what extent will this help clarify and wake me up so that I can be of more benefit to others? Because this is the real kind of touchy part in, in the Buddhist practice. People say, well, shouldn't you be going out and doing social work? And then other people say, well, I'm not going to go until I'm a Buddha, and then I can really be more effective. It's a dance that we have to find our way in between and, and say, well, you know, I need to keep working on myself because, you know, if I have greater power to help others, then the one hour that I would have put in is going to be worth a hundred hours. At the same time, if I wait and say, well, but if I become a Buddha, then it's going to be worth a billion hours. But maybe I'm not going to make it in this lifetime. So I better do a little, a little balance between the two of some that's directly a benefit and others that is increasing my potentiality for greater benefit. I hope that's helpful. So, so if I have the thought, not necessarily when dreaming, but even after, and I think, well, you know, lucid dreaming, I've read a lot about it and people know about it. Um, is it possible that even in my motivation, there's a sense that I just want to do this as a kind of a novelty. Yes, and, and keep, keep in mind, we always come with a partial self-motivation until, until we're on the first boomy as bodhisattvas. There's always going to be some partial self-motivation. But understand, it's very simple. Lucid dreaming is interesting to you but ultimately it's to benefit because my gosh, that's eight hours. It's not gonna be eight hours, but it's at least some time when we're not doing anything else, we might as well be working on our minds so that we can be better when we're encountering with actual other people or seemingly actual <laughs> other people. They, they are still appearances. But they do have some relative reality, unlike the dream quality. It has very little relative reality. I suspect that the, I suspect that there are many people who um, are familiar with lucid dreaming, and for many of them, maybe most of them, it's really like a, as I said, a, a novelty. Yes, that's fun, true. And a curiosity, and they talk about that. Right. But, but what makes, how does one transform that afterwards and, in, and imbue that with a higher motivation for doing all of this? Imbue it with a higher motivation. That's all. So it's, it's like the rest of one's practice, which also comes into play. It's all motivation. Everything is what, do you, what the motivation that you're entering it in, into with. And that's what empowers it. That's why, that's why we dedicate the benefit at the end. That's why we have the aspiration at the beginning. 
Now, speaking of that, we're kind of at the time limit. So what I, I, I can continue on for a little bit because I see there may be some more. But let's share, because some people have to leave. Let us dedicate the benefit of this conversation together. And, and this is where, the Peter, just tune into this motivation, okay? And you can add in the lucid dreaming practice, okay? May the practice I have just done, go ahead and repeat that. May the practice I have just done be of benefit to others as well as myself. And if you want to up your motivation, may most, if not all, of the benefit from the practice go to others. That's dedicating the merit, the good karma, the benefit from the practice. Thank you very much. Andy, it's up to you if you want to do one more, otherwise we can go. Uh, yeah, so uh, Rahim has his hand raised, and I saw that David had a chat question for you. So why don't we take uh, Rahim's question, and then maybe you could respond to uh, converse with David in the chat. Does that sound okay. good? Sounds good. Okay, great. So Rahim, um, give you the audio next. I can, I can answer David's right away. No, I'm not familiar with Aphantasia. But I'll look at this article. Thanks, David. Okay, Rahim. Hi, Joseph. Hi. I'm wondering, um, most dreams have form, and sometimes I wake, I'm awake for a second, and it's, it's kind of dark, kind of a sparkly silence. And I'm wondering if there's a way to become lucid in the dark part of sleep. That is a great question. There are two practices, dream yoga and sleep yoga. And there are different stages of sleep. Um, I tried to practice the sleep yoga. I did not have much success in retreat. Dream yoga? Good. Uh, fun, funny story. Um, I tend to fall asleep pretty easily. Someone, someone even saw me when I was practicing and holding some implements uh, in, in my Vajrayana practice. And I fell asleep. So my greatest fear going into retreat wasn't that I couldn't, that, that I would, and I, I can sleep sitting up pretty easily, was that finally when I get to sleep sitting up, I won't be able to. So, um, but that didn't turn out to be, I was able to sleep plenty. So um, I think this would be actually a better question for Andrew if you can tune in next week. But yes, there are two different practices and I'm not that well versed in the, uh, sleep luminosity practice. Luminosity practice that that there's a sense of being awake while while you're in deep sleep. Um, but I do know that in dreams, in the dream state, there are all sorts of different versions of it. Some some people experience like half of their field of vision, the top half of their field of vision, being kind of gray or black or you know and then a kind of soft border, and then everything's happening under there. I was just rereading some of Andrew's stuff. It, it's almost like you're walking around in your dream without a head because you're not actually perceiving through your physical organs, right? Yeah. So, so, 
So everybody has a different experience of, of perspective. Sometimes you are watching and in the action at the same time. Sometimes you're the other person and yourself at the same time. Sometimes you're just the other person. It's really no limits, right? Because it's a dream. Yes. But, um, but I would ask Andrew about that, uh, the uh, lucidity in darkness part, okay? Thank you. Great. Well, thank you, everybody. Appreciated it so much. And um, Just, I do you I'll mind taking one more question? Oh, I'm okay. Yeah, sorry, because I skipped over Marilyn by accident and uh, she, she had a question. So, okay. Hi, Marilyn. Let me call Marilyn right now. Or is she gone? Mm, I'm right here. Yes, yes you can yes. hear me. Hi, Marilyn. Well, thank you very much. I really, really, really appreciate your taking this time. Uh, with us, and it's just been so so helpful. Believe me, please believe me that, <laughs> uh, that this is of more benefit to me than to you. But I dedicate it back to you. You don't you don't know that, but <laughs> we'll take equal benefit. So I had two quick questions. I hope they're quick. You, last time you talked about the putting the thumb at the base of the ring, uh, uh, the fourth finger, which I do, and you said why, and I missed that part. Did I? Is yes. Or Andrew? Oh, it might have been Andrew. Might have been Andrew. It, it's one of the uh, channels and bandas and locks, and it's an anatomical. It's a, it's a um, subtle body thing of the okay. nadis and bindus and channels and prana, and and it it it, it blocks a certain energy, and and so. You, you put your thumb there, press in there, and then curl your fingers around it. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And that's the Vajra knot. That's all Vajra I Vajra knot. <laughs> and then my other question yeah, is... I might have made that up. Sorry. <laughs> really, don't take my word for that's what it's called. Don't write it down. Oh, oh too late. <laughs> no idea. That's it. That's so, <clears throat> oh, Vajra fist, she <laughs> says. Vajra fist. Yeah, fist, right. That's your okay. handshake. <laughs> so the, the other thing I know you're part of the club. Okay. Part of a glove? Club. Part of the club. 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 Club club club. Secret. Okay. Then the other thing you're talking about is the stability of mind yeah. and that you I know thought. like you the example that you gave, you know, here you are, breath in, breath out, and then taking you're the train to New York City and you're off. Isn't it fast? So, One little flicker. Boom. And then, you know, sometimes just for fun, I try to trace the thoughts back to see what 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 triggered that train. I mean, just for fun. You know, we used, so, to, do that. We used to do that in college. After an evening of... And yes, okay. How did we get here? Well, exactly. And then I said that, and then you said this, and yeah. So my question is that, you know, when when I look at it, now Pema, Pema brought up a very good thing, which was, you know, just ask yourself, where do these thoughts come from? So that's an interesting thing as well. But, you know, when when I am doing it, it's like my mind is going off on this and then that and then this, the other. So the stability of mind, it just seems like impossible. Well, And uh, what does that actually mean? Okay, so... It means what you are identified with, okay? Now, there are 
there are, I was thinking about this this morning. There are different levels, okay? So um, Andrew has talked about, and I've talked about reverse meditation in which you're overwhelmed by the thoughts, so you make them the object instead of your breath. Oh. Okay, so I'm just gonna watch <laughs> thoughts. And I've talked about this as, well, and as long as you're watching the parade, that's fine. When you find yourself in the parade, then you've been swept away by the daydream. But you separate yourself in that way, and, and it is an intermediate step. Because there is still a quality of watcher over here and thoughts over there. But again, you're identifying more with the container than with the contents. Okay? Now, the ultimate, the, the, the deeper state is a sense in which container contents that the ocean and the waves are not seen as separate and that you can immerse yourself in the whole thing and not get lost and not be swept away by the waves or swept away by the thoughts. But that's a, that's a more realized state of being. We have glimpses of that. And, and here's the thing that it's important for everybody to understand. We get mistaken with the idea that it's all or nothing. That, mm -hmm. oh, I'm confused. And if only one day it all was clarified. And boom, my mind is totally stable. <laughs> Yay, I did it. I got to stable mind. And it will never again be unstable. Not really possible because of impermanence. The idea is that we take those little moments of stability and we just, and, and they're not even moments of stability, they're, mo they're little moments of insight and moments of identification with the bigger space rather than, than caught up in the dream. Moments of lucidity. And we just make them bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what we're talking about of stability until they, that, that and, and Trungpa Rinpoche put it in an interesting way. They asked him, someone asked him, do you remember the moment you were enlightened? And he said, well, I don't really remember a particular moment, but I do have a sense that, that before I was having flashes of nirvana, and later, I was having flashes of samsara. So do you identify with samsara and, and try to hold on to those moments of nirvana? Or do you identify with the nirvana and notice that every now and again, your mind gets <laughs> flashes of samsara? You see? So it's what we identify with, the contents or the container. And ultimately, the con there is no container or contents. It's all one field of uh, of wisdom. Thank you. You're welcome. So again, we dedicate the merit and thank you all for this opportunity. Truly, I, I treasure it.